Welcome to the Resistance Broadcast, everybody. I'm John. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is a glorious day for Star Wars fans because it is the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back being released way back in 1980. And uh, we're going to spend this whole episode dedicated to episode five of the Star Wars saga, uh, which at one point was called part two, I guess. But we'll get into that later. Um, with me, as always, James and Lacey and... We are joined by a former Lucasfilm creative executive. He is a writer and author. His upcoming novel about the space race called All Up is available for pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and will be released on July 14th. He's known for writing the making of Star Wars books, including our topic today, The Empire Strikes Back. And you may also know him for revealing George Lucas didn't like Mara Jade with us last year on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Resistance Broadcast, J.W. Rinsler. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Somehow, this seems like the only way to talk now. So it's, it's even, <laughs> yeah, no. uh, yeah, more it welcome than last time in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, we appreciate you coming back. Um, it's been about a little over a year since you were with us last time, and it certainly feels oddly more normal now to be doing this sort of thing than than back then i'm sure for you too yeah. um but yeah we want before we get into star wars and uh um mainly really the empire strikes back uh as i mentioned your book all up why don't you just take a few moments and let us know what that's about how it came about and where people can get it and uh whatever you want to do about well, it. i'll keep it short so all up is is not it's about the space race but it's also about the whole first space age. It really starts actually before World War II and then takes you all the way through World War II and all the amazing and very strange things that were going on at that time with the development of rocketry and the V2 rocket and MI6 trying to figure out what Nazi Germany is doing. And, and uh, there's a lot of, it's, it's based, you know, it's a historical fiction thriller. It's, it's based on something like 80% verifiable facts, but it also brings in things that you can't really uh, verify 100%, but which are, there's, there's quite a lot of proof for, you know, the Foo Fighters and UFOs and the Battle right. of Los Angeles and how that was or was not related to the central story. And then and then it goes through the space race and up, up to the Apollo 11 mission and the landing on the moon. And so uh, the reason why I did it is I started doing research when I was working when I was taking the bus, basically back and forth to Lucasfilm, I had, I had time to kill, and I just started doing a lot of research and realized that not only did I not know much about it, but all the people I was talking to at work, the people who knew a lot about this stuff actually did not really know that much stuff about it. They knew about the technical side, they knew about Apollo 11, but they didn't know just you know anything. No, for instance, if I say Sergei Pavlovich. Uh, but I'm mispronouncing it, so nobody knows what I'm talking about. But Korolev, <laughs> if I were even if I were pronouncing it correctly, nobody would know who I was talking about. But he was the Russian principal designer behind Sputnik and the first man in space. And, oh, okay. And it's just there's just it's an unbelievable story. Perhaps the most exciting story, you know, true adventure story of the 20th century. And uh, it just seemed like it was time to go behind the scenes. For me, it was like another behind-the-scenes book, you know. Instead of writing about yeah Star Wars or Indiana Jones or whatever, uh, I could write about something that really happened. I mean, the other stuff really happened, but but as a novel, so I could introduce things that are not 
verifiable and also get into people's heads. Sure. So it was a lot of fun. Man, that sounds so cool. That is so so cool. Yeah, I hope people will like it. Let me then ask you real quick. Do do you think that Star Wars was the thing that put you on this path of like space storytelling? Uh, It certainly didn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I actually went... Triggered. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have seen them walk on the moon. Like my parents woke me up and I was there. Do you remember it like vividly? Yeah, vividly. It was not okay, something wow. I was seven or almost seven. Uh, and I, I, I understood what was going on. And then awesome. uh, after the whatever celebration it was for episode three, I drove around with my family. We went to Huntsville and I went to the space museum there, which actually Werner von Braun started. And there's this Saturn V on its side. That, that, <laughs> if you haven't been there, if you live anywhere near Huntsville, Alabama, it's really worth the trip to go see it. It's an incredible museum. And then in the bookstore were all these bookstores, were all these a few books showing basically here's the guys who built a Saturn V, and it was all these Germans in Nazi uniforms, or you know, mm-hmm. German army and a few in Nazi uniforms. And I, and I did, I was only vaguely aware of Operation Paperclip and all of that. And so mm-hmm. I, it just, and then I, so then I thought about it for many years and it took many years to write and it took many, many versions <laughs> to have drafts because it, I'd never done something wow. like this. So I have to say it was a learning process. Wow. So when you got to the final draft, was it very difficult to let it go because you... Had been oh yeah! So long. The original book was much, much longer. I did so <laughs> much work I didn't have to do, but as yeah. they say, you have to drown your learn how to drown your babies. So yeah, I had to take all sorts of stuff out of the book, which was not easy, and, and reduce it to a size that anybody would even consider publishing. And then you you just release the director's cut in a blog somewhere or whatever. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> I don't know. It might not be such a good idea. <laughs> it's, still, it's still around 600. Hey, those parts got cut. 600 pages? It's still 600 pages. Wow. Wow. Good luck to the audiobook. guy. Are you going to do your own audiobook? I think they're, the publisher, no. I mean, I'm not, I, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I think the publisher is evaluating whether they want to do an audiobook or not. I hope they That's cool. Do. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, so July 14th, and it's available for pre-order, as I said. Uh, and where, where I saw on your website, it's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I don't know if there's other places too, but uh, go check it out. If you know JW's writing, obviously, it's uh, of that quality. So uh, give that a look. Um, but now, um, for, so 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, y- your book for this came out at the 30th anniversary, right? Yes, in, 19, okay. in 2010, yeah. So, happy 10-year anniversary to your book. Yeah, hey. oh, that's right. I, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yes, 10th anniversary. All right. I'm going to tweet about it one day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so, I guess to get the ball rolling um, about this, uh, I'd finally gotten my copy, and uh, I, just, I, I love it so much um, because it really is just a a permanent stamp on how things were. And I think that's so important as time goes on, just like you were saying about your other book and, and you know, the history of the space race and the engineering and nobody knows that stuff. And as more time passes, you just remember the headlines and the clippings and that sort of stuff. Um, but so uh, to, to kick things off here, when George first 
came up with the idea to make his sequel for Star Wars, as as I understand it, the second part was going to be to conclude it, right? So he he was essentially going to use the second version to conclude his saga, and it was it was trademarked as part two. Initially, mm-hmm. I don't know uh, that I actually don't. Uh, I didn't come across anything that said he was going to try and conclude it. I'm, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I, that it could be, I'm not saying it's not true, but I didn't come across any information about that. What I did come across in the, um, in these, in the old interviews was, and I published it in the, uh, an issue of star Wars insider was George's talk with, uh, uh, you know, it's been a while, Alan Dean Foster, right. Who wrote yeah. mm-hmm. Splinter of the mind's eye. Right. He, when they were discussing what became that book, George was talking about it as being, and he'll, he, he will not agree with this. And so it may not have been fixed in his mind, but the interview, if you read it in star Wars insider, uh, um, he, he's talking about this novel as if that story will be the sequel. Now, if that story, as they were talking about it, was going to wrap it up, that's possible, but I don't think so because I also, I definitely remember him saying he wanted to do it like James Bond. He wanted to do a movie every year, which is finally now what's happening. Right. Which is right. I, I mm-hmm. very ironic. Right. In many, many ways. Um, and I remember when I did the Star Wars Insider article afterwards, there was a, uh, George was getting an award at a, given out by the San Francisco Museum or something or other. And he, and, uh, he invited me to come to a talk there. And afterwards he said, you know, that insider article is wrong. I said, Oh, it's, it's wrong. And I said, well, <laughs> if it's wrong, well, tell me what's right. And we'll print it. And he said, Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, in some ways a kind of typical George conversation. <laughs> Do you feel like it depends on the decade you get an interview from George Lucas. Like if you got a table of five people and it's all George Lucas from each decade, would they argue with each other? Definitely. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. <laughs> and also, I mean, I don't mean to, to in any way diminish him, but you know, like oh. a lot of people who are very creative, his ideas change. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once his and also because he's somebody who has to really fight and has had to fight to get his ideas made into movies or whatever, even building Skywalker Ranch. Once he latches on to the new idea, that's the only idea that exists. Sure. Okay. And 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 one solid example of that is when I was on the set of Episode Three, he was saying how you could move the movies around, and they tell different stories. You can tell them four or five, six, one, two, three, or whatever, whatever order you want. And he really liked that idea. And that's in the episode three book. Definitely said it. He approved it. Years later, fast forward to when we're looking to do specials for some Blu-ray release or something. I said, why don't we do something about how you can do, tell different stories depending on which. And Lynn Hale said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. We were all very excited about it. And I sent a memo to George, or actually, no, I sent a memo to George, or she did. I can't remember who. But anyway, and he wrote back saying, no, there's only one way to watch them, one through six. That's it, <laughs> the only way. And we were all Incredible. disappointed. What? One through six, he that said. Was his, well, that was, yeah, that was, this was roughly 2014 that he said that. 
Oh, okay. I love yeah. that there's 2014 it's just interesting George how, yeah. versus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it, I would, I would like to see you know different versions of what he thinks is like the order to watch it in. You know what I mean? Like the machete order and the other versions mm-hmm. and other things like that. Like George Lucas's would I. I assume at this point it would be chronological, right? Yeah, that's what he's saying. It's one through six. And my, I, yeah. I, I've said this many times, and I probably bored you with it last time, so stop me. You guys can edit it out. <laughs> but I see the Star Wars movies as three different stories, right? There's Star Wars, mm-hmm. which is the end of a prequel. There, I've, I said this, right? Yeah, but say it again because I love, I love you saying this. So, yes. I don't have to say it. <laughs> we want you say to it. go. No, no, all right, say it. So, all right. So it's the end of the leaving home trilogy, which is THX, American graffiti, Star Wars. It's all about leaving home. The next is a two part story about sons and fathers or whatever it is, empire and Jedi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you have a three part story about how does a good kid become bad and how does a sort of stagnant democracy become a dictatorship and the characters don't really line up from right. story to story. They don't. And Darth Vader doesn't even line up between six and five. Right. He doesn't, you know, and it's not, it's very hard to do those movies. And it's just, it's sort of an idiosyncratic aspect of Star Wars, which I think in some odd way makes them even more interesting. So if I, so I'm, I'm going to throw two names at you. And if they didn't pass away when they did, Tell me, in your opinion, with the research you did, how marginally different between each person's contributions or what their contributions would have been, how different would Empire have been? So John Barry and Lee Brackett. Uh, Well, John Barry is a little bit complex because, you know, he wanted to go off and direct his own movie, which because he wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. And George is, I think, very disappointed that he didn't want to come couldn't or didn't want to come back as production designer. Right. But when John Barry's movie fell apart and he was fired by Kirk Douglas, uh, he came in as second unit director. And I, I think George was really happy. And he shot for a few days or a week. I can't remember in the hangar uh, on Hoth. And then he died. You know, he, he went home from the set and died. I forget how long later, but not long later, a few days. Meningitis, right? Something like that. I don't remember. Um, so if John Barry had been the production designer from the beginning, the sets would certainly, I'm not, and Norman Reynolds is a great production designer, but they're two different kinds of artists. And so it probably would have looked slightly different. Right. Right. Um, and John Barry, I mean, George is a very critical guy and John Barry is one of the few people who he was just unconditionally positive about and described him as a genius several times. And he was the guy, you know, George had never made a soundstage movie. And John Barry and Roger Christian in the art department are the ones who helped him through it while, while George feuded with the camera department. (laughs) 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 And uh, Lee Brackett is, is her, her influence. If she hadn't died, I mean, that's hard to say whether he would have had her do the second draft. It's hard. I don't know. She's a really, she was a great writer. It seems like they were, it's hard to say because she was dying as she wrote her draft. And he right. just, as I described in the book, he was, and I've seen, you know, he would write no and big, by like page 18, he was just writing no. Yeah. And that means he was really upset. Yeah. 
<laughs> so was it the size of the font that he used? Is how? <laughs> yeah, it started out with he was making small notes, and then by whatever it was, seventeen or eighteen, it was just no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so George is a pretty loyal guy, and he respected her work. Mm-hmm. So it's possible he could have said, "Okay, let's try again," and this is what I want, and it would have worked out. It, but I just don't know. Okay. It says, "I know" on your T-shirt. Maybe you know, but right. I, I, no, I, I don't know. But just from your book, and then I guess we can all kind of bounce this around a bit. Just um, like your segments of Lee Brackett's first draft, Yoda was called Minch, and it was more of a, a troll-looking character. Vader thought he killed Luke Skywalker on Hoth and kind of confirmed his he, that he killed him. Uh, in his mind, he thought he got him. Lando was a clone, uh, which maybe is an idea George brought back for the prequels. Uh, Luke was in love with Leia, and Vader uh, kind of used that against him in a way. And But the Emperor seemed the same. Like The Emperor seemed like they knew exactly what they wanted out of the Emperor out of the gate. So... Um, can you like kind of comment on those bits and um, what you may have learned uh, from that aspect of the story that early on? Because especially you, having worked on your current novel, how things changed so much, it's amazing that mm-hmm. those types of things were in the first draft for this. Um, right. Unfortunately, you know, I, he must have had many talks with her before she went off and wrote. And I, I don't haven't seen you know that story conference notes later. There's notes with Kasdan, uh, Kirshner, and, and Lucas. So we know what they said, more or less. But I don't know what they were talking about. You can assume that a lot of those ideas, if not most of them, were George's about what the relationships were and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see how she could, otherwise she would have gotten up to speed that quickly. Okay. But the style of the writing just wasn't in that kind of, uh, serial kind of Star Wars, you know, and with the humor that George had had created, and she just wasn't getting in, and she was really ill. Um, so, but I think like it does prove again that you know George would was very busy and doing all sorts of things, and the relationships between the characters were not fixed. They were always, it was, I always described it as a kaleidoscope because. Always in motion, the characters. Exactly. (laughs) In the very first, in the rough draft, Anakin Starkiller's father is, as you guys know, is Kane Starkiller and he is half man, half machine. Right. And then that, that idea is just sort of fault doesn't appear again until he decides to make Darth Vader Luke's father. But George's mind he sort of always was the father figure, yeah. but but while he was making Star Wars, clearly he's not. Right. So sure. Um, yeah. So those things were just, as you say, constantly in motion. Wow. This uh this kind of brings up another question that um I had written down for you. We talked about you know Lando being a clone was like somewhere in the notes. Like in your opinion, what what's something in the story that was um historically almost the final product and then just like at the last minute they swerved and what a what a crazy change that would have been uh, you know offhand i just can't think of anything 
I'm sure there's something. I, I have the book right here. I could go through it, but you probably don't want to see me going through my book trying to remember. <laughs> this is a five-hour yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yes. Speaking um, of the book, it's John said this the other day, and I have to agree completely because I got mine a couple weeks ago, and it is just majestic. It is gigantic. It's heavy. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful piece of history. So knowing that you did all that research, you had all these conversations and you got to see all these different documents and stuff. Is there anything when you look at the book that you immediately think of that you're like, I can't believe I found that or I can't believe I heard that conversation. That is just something really cool to you. Uh, Well, two things, Tony. When I look at the book, I always think this book could have been a lot better. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) I'm really serious because the first book, we had a designer. I gave them the pictures. They designed the books. And I moved things around. We, and I helped sure. them plan the pages. And it, was a, it was a, and it was very frustrating because you're kind of pushing somebody else to do something. In between, yeah. I worked with John Noel in a book, and he showed me how to lay out to do a book map. So I did a book map for mm-hmm. Empire. And that's basically what was published is my book map. Nobody okay. went in and then designed the book, making it look better. That's, it's really, there's almost no design in, in that book. And so then on Return of the Jedi, we finally got it right, where I did a book map, and then a really good designer went in and made it look like a beautifully designed book. Uh, I, I actually, it's okay, but it could have been a lot better. And if they ever, I think it's a beautiful book, well, but yes, I can understand that as if it's your project, you're like, oh, I could have done this. Yeah, there was a misunderstanding between me and the publisher, and uh, they, anyway... Uh, and I, I kept waiting for the book to be designed and then it was published. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, It happens. But the other thing is, uh, the thing that I just can't believe is that when I was working on, and that's in the intro and I've probably told this Mm -hmm. story already, but it's the anniversary. So we'll tell it again. Yeah. I was working on star Wars. I was working on some book. I think I was working on the Indiana Jones book. You've done too many books. They're and, all blending and together. And Don Bees was in the archives <laughs> with me. I don't know why he was there. And he used to be the archivist. And this is at Skywalker Ranch. And he said, I hear you're going to do Empire. You know, when I was the archivist, I found all these cassette tapes in the garbage. They were about to throw them out. And they're the original Alan Arnold tapes. Would you be interested in using them? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I said, are you joking? And so he had had them in his closet for, I don't know, 15 years or something, or 20 years. I don't know how long. It says in the book, I think. And there yeah. were, these were the original. There were no copies. These were the original Alan Arnold tapes that he did wow. for Once Upon a Galaxy. And he only used at the most 10% of what he recorded. And there, you could hear Kirshner and Anthony Daniels and uh, I forget who else in the cafeteria at L Street talking. And I and I use some of those in the what it is the enhanced ebook versions, but right. we could, but we could have put in ten times the amount of audio and uh, and video. Well, I don't know about video, but audio definitely because there was a lot of interesting stuff. And was it a right. lot of candid conversations? Like, did they know? Yeah. They were, oh, okay. They knew they were being recorded, uh, but they didn't care. Lucasfilm had one hundred percent control over the tapes. Sure. And wow. and that's where I got the you know sort of the extended version of the thing that led up to I know with Harrison Ford and Kirshner and the right and you can but on the tape it's very interesting because you can hear them they, the conversation starts out on the set then it moves in over here then 
moves into the dressing room and then Carrie Fisher shows up and she's very upset about something, which I don't remember. And, uh, <laughs> and, but you really can hear the, uh, you can hear Kirstner kind of taking control of the situation and also doing what a director does, which is slightly manipulating his actors to get the performances and, and get everybody on the same page. And it's fascinating because he was, he was a very, uh, there's some, in some quarters there are actors who really didn't like working with Kirshner, but that wasn't the case on the empire strikes back. They all really loved working with him. Okay. Because that story, see, like it seems to have its own folklore to it, that scene. And like, did Harrison Ford just come up with that on the spot? Is that true? Like Kirshner almost in the empire of dreams seemed to make it seem that way where he said, just clear your mind and let's just roll. Let's just do it. And that just came out. No, no, it's not the case. It's right. But he paints it in that romantic way. Right. Well, you know, also that's, that's the huge advantage of doing a book over a, a a video piece. Mm -hmm. Video pieces have to be very short sentences and lots of visual sides. And you can do lots of really cool things in the video side and the visual side. But the right. book, you have the time to tell a whole story. Right. Which you just don't in a, in a video. <laughs> right. So what's the, so for the audience, what's the true story as you understand it of that iconic scene and how it came to be? Well, I, you know, I, I'd have to go back and read the book. But <laughs> what I remember is this. What I, what I said is that they, they didn't, I think they thought it could be better than as it was written. And there was a lot of changing that the whole sort of freezing chamber went through a lot of different versions and iterations as did their fight. And, uh, they were just, it was one of the things, one of the reasons why the movie was going kind of slowly was that, uh, George and George's movies are all this way. And so are most movies. There are hardly any movies where they say, okay, we really know what we're going to shoot. (laughs) <laughs> shoot it. They go to the editing room. Yeah, this all cuts together perfectly. Right. Done. Mm-hmm. It's always a it's always a real struggle. Right. Ninety percent of the time. So they were just saying we let's you know this needs to be this can be better. Let's change it. You know, just like they invented the whole we're going to blow up the rebel base in Star Wars, which was not in the script, as you guys know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So speaking of the script, this so the second draft George took over and wrote because Lee Brackett passed away. Right. And he was, uh, in your book, he was reluctant to do it because, uh, as Kirshner said in your book, George Lucas hated writing. He didn't right. like doing it. Right. So he was like racking his brain on finding someone to write for it, and then he eventually did it. But then in your book, it says that George Groot, he actually found it to be an enjoyable experience um and now of course he brought in Kasdan eventually um but do you feel like that was a a turning point for George to eventually see himself penning all three scripts for the prequels like did that experience change everything for him mm. well i think i don't know about enjoy i don't, he he never said that he liked writing he never and and later like my last interview with him, he described how much he hated men- most of the process of making a movie, but that was the mood he was in that day. Uh, that day he even said he didn't enjoy editing. And I don't believe that he was just feeling grouchy or something. Um, but um, uh, I think he, he realized 
after working with Brackett that he was going to need to write at least the first draft of this, mm-hmm. of the stories. And then he really, he, he needed to bring in somebody to do the polish. And that's what he did with the hikes on the first one and Lawrence Kasdan on the second and the third, they did polishes. And the problem with the prequel trilogy is he never found somebody to do the polishes. That's, Why mm-hmm. didn't Kasdan get involved in the prequel trilogy? It's kind of like you and your book layout. Yeah, yeah you need a pot- <laughs> somebody who are, you know, who's good at doing the stuff that you can't do. Right. Which is, is it's like you need, it's almost like a good editor um, to, to do that thing. And uh, I don't know what happened on the prequels. I know, I only know for episode three, I remember they were trying to find somebody and they just couldn't. Uh, and I, and, uh, you know, Rick McCallum could tell you more. Sure. Right. Because, um, Let's get them on. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. The next thing I want to get into is, um, and I'm the biggest Empire fan of the three of us. That's why I'm just like kind of. We're letting him have to go have at my it. moments here. <laughs> um, so there's a big moment when Luke leaves Dagobah and Obi-Wan, and you had the screenshots of the scripts there from Lee Brackets and George crossing things out and changing words where he says, Kenobi says, he is, that, that boys are our only hope. And Yoda says, uh, no, there is another in the final version, but in the early scripts, it was, no, we must find another, and George changed it to, no, we must search for another. So clearly, this whole myth that George had all this figured out and that they were twins and he knew it and all that stuff is is obviously not accurate. It, when it comes to The Empire Strikes Back and making this movie... How much did George have put together? Was it just that he wanted to make Darth Vader Luke's father and that's it? Like Leia was not even part of the deal, right? That was still a potential three-way romance. Right. That was clearly, to me anyway, this is just my opinion. And based on my the research that, as, I've, as I've studied it, is that, yeah, there was a three-way romance going on in Empire. They were not brother and sister yet. And although, again... George came on your show and argued it. He'd say, well, look at this early draft where Leia was Luke's cousin. Because that was was in the second draft or something of the Star Wars, she was his cousin. So again, just like the father thing, there was a precedent. But then an empire was more interesting to have it be a love triangle. Much more interesting. But then when Jedi came around, and in the Jedi book, I, I... I wrote it. I mean, I got, I didn't write it. I, uh, I found the part where George wrote it. He writes Leia exclamation mark. And I am 99% sure that is where that was the moment where George decided, okay, Leia is his sister and she's the, the missing, you know, there is a, she's the other. Wow. Okay. That, I mean, that, that's kind of crazy to me because people are so the revisionist history and George, I guess, um, maybe it's a little bit of his own fault that he kind of paints it that way that he had this grand design. And if you just look at the history and, you know, your books and, you know, uh, historical facts of how these movies were made, it's just, it was pretty piecework until he had the prequels, which is obviously designed out and fitting up. Until, well, uh, and also you've got to know the way George is a key part of all of this. The key part is George Lucas's personality is idiosyncra- idiosyncrasies he doesn't want to have it planned out. He okay. does not want to have it planned out. Uh, it's boring to know exactly what you're going to do. 
there has to be ex- excitement in the creation. Right. Uh, he doesn't, he didn't want people to do the artists to do really advanced storyboards. So clearly there was a lot of storyboarding going on in the first three, but as it, as he, the tools got more powerful in terms of filmmaking, he, there was less and less storyboarding going on. Although there was a lot more animatics, but then he had control over it. He didn't want other people, uh, designing his shots for him because he knew that once you brought storyboards to a set, then you were kind of beholden to those storyboards. Right. And so he wanted to be able to spontaneously change things on the fly. That's exciting. And to be able to change things in editorial like they did in star Wars and uh, you know, how he was able to in Jedi, you know, basically change so much of the whole three way giant battle at the end and to, mm-hmm. and to, to be able to create something. And so I think that's the way he likes to work. He, and he likes to get, he likes to wrong foot people. So they don't even know sometimes what's happening. Uh, really? Sure. Uh, not, it's not like he's diabolical, but he wants, it's like, there has to be a kind of spontaneity in it for him. That's my take. And I, I don't think, he would enjoy knowing exactly what was going on. Um, although, you know, if you interviewed him, he might say that he did know everything was going on and he really does like, I mean, it's just, you know, he could completely contradict everything that I've said. And, uh, he, and, and in his defense, he did. And I think I mentioned this last time too, but he said, he once told me that he had a really big, like giant book or series of notebooks or whatever, where he has all his like most intimate ideas about, Star Wars and his writings. And, uh, and I said, well, can I see it? And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so maybe in that book, all this stuff is spelled out way in advance. I don't know. I keep looking at your t-shirt, which as you know, and it's very disconcerting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm really digging this. It's making me think about, you know, his approach to the prequels. Um, You know, is is this, this personality, this, this part of George that just kind of wants to take it on the fly. um, Do you think that that, that helped navigate his process when he was like, well, let's do episode one, then two, then three, as opposed to being like, let me just get it all done and then we'll start production on episode one. Like he was writing two and three after yeah, I could, he had already done. Right. One, and I haven't right? written books about one and two, so I don't know. I imagine for that one, he might've had more sure. of it somewhat detailed outline because he knew he was going to make three. Cause the first one, right. He had no idea if he was ever going to make a second one for right. empire. Yes. <laughs> but for the prequels, he knew he was going to get through all three. Sure. But at the same time, I, I do think that, he was perfectly willing to change things in two if he got better ideas after making episode one. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it just, it, it, it intrigues me simply because like, and I, and I know this is an empire strikes back episode, but uh, it just makes me wonder what George's uh, view on, you know, Hey, we're, we're getting ready to do seven, eight, nine. You know, do we write the whole story seven, eight, and nine, and then then do the movies, or do we just play it by the ear? What his opinion on that would be? Because it seems like nowadays people think they should have done that, but 
but that's always been George Lucas's personality. It seems like he loves to change things on the fly and he loves to not know the direction of things. And he wants to be able Mm -hmm. to kind of on the deadline, change something to make sure that that's the perfect route they want to go. That's cool, man. Yeah. He, he once described, I mean, this was just in terms of creating Yoda. Uh, You know, he wrote the Yoda character and they had no idea how they were going to do the Yoda character. And, uh, and he, and I said, well, you know, what were we going to do if it was a disaster? And he said, well, you know, I was working with Jim Henson. He said, he said, I jump out of an airplane, but I always have a parachute. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a calculated risk. You know, he knows he's playing with fire, but he has certain, you know, aces in his hand. He has a plan B, C, D. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so for seven, eight, nine, you know, he had a plan for seven and then less of a plan for eight and less of a plan for nine. But he definitely he definitely gave Disney an outline, which they right. which they ignored. Right. And he made clear that they ignored. Yeah. That's not a revelation. I wonder, no. do, do you feel like and I want to get the, back to Empire, obviously, do you feel like he. Um, I don't know if you had spoken to him about this, but that famous interview uh, where he said Disney, the white slavers and all that stuff. Do you feel like he regretted <laughs> that interview like entirely? That I only he could say. I know uh, I was still at Lucasfilm at that time. And he, it was shortly before we I was supposed to interview him for the book, uh, the Force Awakens book. Mm-hmm. He was all set to write about that. He was enthusiastic. And after that, they, they came down very hard on him and uh, he canceled the interview. I think that was it for him. Oh, wow. So, okay. I, so I think clearly he did not enjoy being, you know, slapped down or whatever, being reprimanded by. He's a rebel. Yeah. And he says things off the cuff and that it's, it was a, you know, completely different mindset, completely different process for how they're making the movies now it, it had to change but it was just it's apples and oranges right it's uh, interesting though because the way you described george doing empire seems very similar to the way that jj did rise of skywalker only because he did a lot of things on the fly too like he changed stuff day of they rewrite the script they do different shots and scenes and stuff like that they probably had a more of a written outline than what you're saying with George, but it's interesting to hear that uh, JJ, who's openly said that George is an influence to who he is and what he's done in his life, um, has picked up on that kind of like spontaneity. So that's kind of cool. Well, right. And like I say, most movies, a lot of I'm, movies are made that way. I mean, Clint Eastwood right. is an exception. Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood shoots what's on the page. Right. Uh, and he goes very fast. But Stanley Kubrick would spend, you know, didn't even care. He'd shoot for a year till he got, <laughs> till he completed the movie. That's sort of the other extreme. So yeah, George is certainly not the only one. But the difference is, is that when George and that maybe I don't know about JJ and Disney because I'm not sure. There, but when George, decided, I'm saying more he's pulling in inspiration from George more than anything else. Right, but when George at least. Well, as it turned out for all six films, you know, when he did decide something, there was nobody saying, oh, you sure that's a good idea? Oh, right. There was, there was nobody <laughs> yeah. else. There was nobody looking over his shoulder. Right. right. That's that's true. That the makes buck, sense. The buck always stopped with him, which my, I think one of my favorite parts from your book 
that blew my mind and I didn't know about until I read your book. So that Empire came out and George Lucas ordered more shots to be added to the movie for its wide release. And he had them create three new shots for the very end of the movie right. because the, he felt the end of the movie didn't make sense and left off would leave people confused. Can you touch on that at all? And like, did you talk to George about this to learn more about it? Cause that, that blows my mind. I've heard of people saying like, we worked on that movie up until three days before <laughs> it came out. The movie came out yeah. and he had three shots redone or new shots added. And he made storyboards and had them do these three new shots to add for the wide release. Can you talk yeah. about that? That's crazy. Uh, well, uh, you, you kind of described it. <laughs> That's what happened. He decided okay. I don't know if it, you had more conversations with him about it or, or anything of that nature that you could shed more light on. It's just so fascinating. I don't remember. I, I did. I think I asked about it. Um, again, I'd have to look it up in the book and it's going to be boring. Um, <laughs> but I, do, I, de I definitely asked Joe Johnston about it too. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I thought the movie was done. <laughs> and he was down <laughs> in southern Los Angeles relaxing and suddenly he got this call. And it wasn't from George, it was from, I think it was the ILM general manager. It said, you know, we need three more shots. We've got till tomorrow or something to design them. <laughs> I, whatever it says in the book. And, uh, and you can see the coffee circle stain of his coffee thing on, on one of the storyboards. Because <laughs> he was pulling an all-nighter or something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he just, you know, George could do that by that point. It was, you know, the biggest grossing movie of all time. And uh, he wanted to make sure the wide release was made sense. Because <laughs> that, 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 I don't know, there's so many aspects of that that I like because it makes me think of like prequel era George is not really that different from original trilogy era George where he's constantly, or special edition George where he's just constantly wanting to make changes he literally yeah. added to his movie after it came out. Uh, yeah, I love that phrase. I thought it was. I thought the movie was done. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, arguably, it's still not done, right? We we don't know that there's not going to be future changes. It's yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, I can see that. I see the drawings now here, and I can see the coffee stain. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was Tom Smith, I think, who called um, Joe Johnston, and. Uh, and he says George has gone to see the movie with an audience to realize the end of the movie was unclear. <laughs> so, you know, that's what ha happens when you're stuck in an, editor an editorial for a long time. It seems like everybody's seen it so many times that it all makes sense to you. <laughs> and then, you know, when oh an audience sees it, it's like, oh, my God, did you know this movie was about, uh, you know, uh, something that we never thought it was about? <laughs> What are you saying? Yeah, <laughs> i i picture I picture George like asking people as they walked out, like, "What what did you think?" You know, like he's like right there, like he's in the theater. Like I can almost see like a a, a comedy flick of him sitting in the theater and being like, you know, people kind of laugh, and he's like looking over his shoulders right. and stuff. He's like trying to like feel out what everybody's doing, and he's it kind of reminds me of. Um, uh, the 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 room movie that they made. What's it called? Oh, oh, it was based on the that movie, the room. The yeah, the worst. With Tommy yes. Wiseau. Uh, but it yeah. has. Well, James no, yeah, Franco. but it has. Yeah. Um, 
James Franco and his brother. Yeah. It's like, I, I almost want to see this movie of a, it's like a comedy, but it's kind of like a, of a historical, this is how <laughs> yeah. it happened of George yeah. is in this production, man. I love listening to your stories, man. This is awesome. Well, great. I, I'm sure just like they've made, I don't know how many movies they've made about the Beatles now. I mean, not documentaries, but like yeah. live action. Oh movie. yeah. Yeah. Somebody will eventually make a live action movie about the creation of Star Wars. Will will George oh. will, will it be will George have to sanction that since it'd be about him or is it all uh, That's you know? a legal question. I don't think so. I don't I think you can do it without their sanction. I I'm not sure. Who who would play George Lucas? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I I don't know. I'm not a casting director offhand. I don't know. I don't know who the Rich, people are. Richard Dreyfus? Well, in the old days, he could have. No, play like, yeah, true. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I want to ask you then about George Lucas in that way. It Was he like, because that sounds like him, the perfectionist, but it also sounds like him, not insecure, but he wants people to like his product. So what was the balance there? Did he want to change Empire because he wanted to make sure people liked it? Or did he want to change it because it was appeasing to him to fix it and add that stuff? No, because he wants people to understand it. Okay. He wants people to be able to follow the story. That's a key thing about George. And I saw a lot of that while I was <laughs> with him in animatics during episode three. Mm-hmm. He is a real stickler for an action scenes that all the action makes sense. And also it's not just people punching each other for the sake of punching each other or just flailing away with lightsabers for 10 minutes with nothing really happening. Like a lot of fight scenes are today. It's like, where is the emotional content? So he was very concerned about emotional content, but he was also very concerned that it all made sense logistically, geographically for the, for the audience. So if the audience doesn't know where uh, Leia and Luke are, in relation to the Falcon flying off to go get on solo, hopefully that's a big problem in storytelling. Right. So he was a, right. he was a very, very, I mean, is a great storyteller. That's what right. it comes down to. He just wants to tell the story. Well, although I disagree with the ch- some of the changes he made in a new hope, you know, I, I, I don't think you need the Han Solo Jabba the hut scene. Because they covered it's still it, rough. Yeah. it it just slows down the movie, and they already covered that in the dialogue in the cantina, mm-hmm. right? But by that time, you know, he decided he was going to do it, and he was there was nobody's going to stop him. Wait, you didn't like the Ronto covering the entire frame and walking in front of the camera? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, Star Wars is Star Wars. It's the version it was when it came out. Period. Yeah, and I understand. I don't. It's his movie. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Right, but uh, I, uh, you know, he he's the genius who created them. But personally, if I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch the early version. Yeah, that I, I mean that's fair. I mean, so <clears throat> with um, Empire and um, like the Dagobah stuff, there's a lot there. It's a big like chunk of the movie. Um, we all know the story about how it was you know was it going to happen? Was it not going to happen with the puppets um, with Jim Henson? But in your book it kind of at least to me it seems like george got more involved than he thought he was going to need to get involved with the movie um did he butt heads at all with kirshner did he did they have any issues and did george try to like take control at all was there anything like that and what was george's overall involvement with the production 
for empire as opposed to well it was it was evolving right i mean i think george had tremendous respect for kirshner and uh you know he was older and had a lot of experience and worked with a lot of huge stars and had made a number of successful films and had you know what given seminars at usc and that sort of thing but um what happened was he George wanted to step back. He didn't want to go to England, I imagine. And he wanted Gary Kirsch to produce the movie and Kirshner to direct it. And he would just cut it together in the editing room and have some, you know, not have to deal with all the, I mean, you know, whenever I mention some other movie or something, I say, and say, George, wasn't that a difficult situation? He always say, for God's sakes, I did star Wars. Star Wars was for him <laughs> the most difficult thing he ever did. And it, it can't be underestimated in terms of making a movie, how hard it was to make that movie. He took it, basically several industries that had died and revived them single-handedly. You know, it, it's such an amazing accomplishment. It just changed movies forever. So Empire, he just wanted to relax a little bit. <laughs> and, and they went over there, Gary Kurtz, and Gary Kurtz was not, didn't have the same idea of what producing that movie was as George's idea was, which was like to stick to the budget because it was George's money. Right. Oh, Gary, right. Gary Kurt. And I talked to Gary Kurtz um, for the book and he said, you know, we knew it was going to make its money back. What difference did it make if it cost a few million dollars more? It's basically what he said. I'm paraphrasing. And sure. George's idea was, and he, and which is, very legitimate. He says, those were my million dollars. <laughs> That's not a studio. And George had to, it went so far over budget that um, George had to put his company on the line. It was on the chopping block. The bank pulled out and they had to find Bank of Boston instead. It was hugely embarrassing for George. So wow. he was, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, it's in the book, you know, Howard Kazanjian is pulled on at the end to finish producing uh, Empire. And uh, Gary Kirsch was also, you know, there was kind of two producers in a way. How that worked uh, is sub probably a subject for another book. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but then, you know, Kirshner, the director's job is to direct the movie is how he sees fit. And the producer is supposed to keep everything going and on budget. So Kirshner was doing his job. So George didn't. I think blame Kirshner in any way. Uh, and, but what he realized was he was going to have to go over there and put everything back on track. And he did. Oh, okay. And that's when they redid, they cut down the number of scenes on Dagobah. They cut down on the Yoda puppet. He said, and Kirshner understood. It's like, I'm over budget. This is my money. I'm not sure exactly what the conversation was. I don't know. <laughs> but Kirshner didn't, sure. they didn't butt heads. It's like, okay, this is what we're doing now. And I, Pretty sure Kirshner was relatively fine with it, or or he would have left. I mean, he could have, I suppose. Right. Um, right. But I don't think it was anything like that. The person who did end up leaving, of course, was Gary Kurtz. Right. Why? Why did he? Why did he leave? Like, because of the budget. Okay. Um, it's funny you said that. Like, the, you painting that picture of George, like showing up to keep them back on schedule reminds me of like he was George Lucas was Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi showing up on Death Star 2 saying I'm here to keep you back on schedule pretty much for the Empire Strikes Back yeah except <laughs> that he, as far as I know he didn't strangle anybody to death 
He didn't choke anybody. <laughs> as far as you know, right? right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I don't. Uh, <clears throat> he was. He was. The, he was the responsible artist. You know. Right. He also once said to me, "You know, if you give somebody infinite money and, and an infinite time, eventually they'll end up with a at least a, a average movie." The trick is to do it on budget and in the number of days allotted to you. Right. <laughs> and then the mo- and the best expression of that was when he got together with Spielberg and they made Raiders. You know, that was, mm. that was a very interesting thing that they did challenge. They put to themselves it's because Spielberg had famously gone way over budget on his previous movies and over schedule. And George challenged him to stay on time and on budget for Raiders. That's pretty funny. I, I'd love to, I would love to see those dinners and those conversations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Kasdan did Raiders, right? Kasdan wrote Raiders. Yeah. Kasdan really wrote Raiders. I mean, there was a story conference and George wrote the treatment, but then Kasdan went off and just wrote the whole thing. What What is your take on Kasdan's contribution to The Empire Strikes Back? Is it, did he sandpaper it? And, or did he, do you feel like he really put a lot into it in terms of the dialogue and pacing and, and that sort of thing for the storytelling. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things it's hard to quantify because I love Kasdan. So I just, you know, yeah, I'm a huge Kasdan. Yeah, no, I love the big chill and everything. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and he was helpful on both empire and Jedi books. So I owe him a debt of gratitude and, um, for, um, for empire, you know, what George told me was he made Yoda work in terms of the script. Wow. And that was no small thing to make Yoda work. And he also went through and, you know, even if he only changed a word in a scene, in some scenes, or 10 words, those 10 words might have been really important. Right. You know, (laughs) and I think that is... When I watch episode two, Pack of the Clones, it's painful because I think, ah, oh, there is a good movie there that just needed that cast right. in touch. The, the, yes. The, the ideas being, the, everything being said is almost there. It just needed another really good polish, you know, and, and, then, and you're seeing like a rough draft filmed. That That's fair. It, it is like you say, Damn. it's painful to watch some of that dialogue in Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Like, we joke about it all the time, right, guys? We're always like... We do. Yeah. I hate sand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gets everywhere. Right. Yeah, what would, what would Kasdan write instead of saying, I don't like sand? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Kasdan's really good at those, like, kind of, like, one-on-one moments, though. Like, that's where he really shines. And not only that, he basically is Han Solo. Like, his voice is Han Solo. Yeah. I feel. Yeah, and I don't. I'd have to go back and look to see how he revi- revised Han Solo um, mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but is it the hikes to the you know the hikes. Frankly, the hikes deserve as much pre- a credit as, as Kazin, and nobody's ever talking about the hikes. Let's let's talk about the hikes. Well, I mean, they they did. I did go back and look. I had the time to do like a one to one. They took George's dialogue and they made it sing they just made it sing they made it jokes that were kind of funny they made it really funny you know in particular i really remember how you know dusting or 
making the jump to hyperspace ain't like dusting crops, boy. Right. They, they, they had written, if you can see this, George had written like that much dialogue to get the point across. They did it like with that much dialogue. <laughs> and just with, they were like, you need a sentence. <laughs> they, they just made it, they had the sense of rhythm. And George is a pretty good writer, but mm-hmm. but they had they were really good at dialogue, and they did some of that with American Graffiti too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those guys, that couple, really deserve and because they they made they helped make American Graffiti into this huge blockbuster, and then they helped make Star Wars into a huge blockbuster. They deserve huge amounts of credit. Now, why weren't they a part of Empire and wow. going forward with Lucasfilm projects? I think, again, I think it's because they wanted to direct. Oh, okay. And in fact, he wanted them to write. Yeah, it was just always the same story. I think he wanted them even to write all of Graffiti and they were going to direct. And then I don't know what happened. I don't know if they did it or not, but they were available to do the polish. But writers often want to direct. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Um, One other main part I want to get into the the whole thing with um vader and the big surprise about i'm your father and only kirshner and lucas and maybe hamill knew um is david in your book david prouse i guess kirshner saying david prouse tapped him on the shoulder in the theater saying like what the hell (laughs) told me like (laughs) so learning about that story and stuff like that what is your what is your take on uh that whole situation with uh, David Prowse not knowing and the whole secret and how that all came to be. Like what's your, um, after well, done your research, that whole situation is very. Yeah. I mean, again, I'd have to go through the book and, and find when, but they knew going into it, that Prowse couldn't keep a secret. <laughs> they just knew. I'm not sure at what point they knew, but he'd made, he'd made it clear to them. <laughs> Certainly by Jedi, they'd made it, he'd made it really clear. <laughs> And I think in general, they were just keeping it secret because you wouldn't want that to get out, you know? Right. Um, and so there was no reason for David Prowse to know, and they weren't using his voice. Right. Were, why, why would you tell somebody, regardless of how good they were at keeping a secret, why would you right. tell them if they don't need to know? I as simple as that. Mm-hmm. But by Jedi, you- they, they were deliberately keeping him <laughs> way far from any script <laughs> he was and he was like really upset about it right uh yeah i think in general he was just upset that he wasn't getting enough credit for being darth sorry i, I got my throat's getting dry oh that's uh, fine <laughs> thank you um i just wasn't getting enough credit as darth vader i mean imagine how frustrating it is to be the most iconic villain of all time and nobody knows recognizing you on the street right this is david prouse right here yeah right (laughs) and Um, i think anthony daniels had some of that too oh he makes sure i think in the public eye that people know exactly who he is though yeah now yeah he He wears gold suits and everything does he (laughs) yeah (laughs) looks like a game show host when he goes out now oh really um all right i have one more main question and that is all the research you did, all the archiving, all the tapes, what is the one major thing that like shocked you about the making of The Empire Strikes Back or surprised you or awed you uh, that st- stuck with you through the whole process? Well, 
Two things jump to mind. The first is every ILM veteran that I talked with, Dennis Murren, uh, you know, Ralph McQuarrie, they all said that Empire was the hardest film they'd ever worked on, ever. And this is many right. years afterwards. Because the other thing about George is not only does he like to make things up on the fly sometimes, but he's also pushing his people. Is if you can do this, I, I want you to do this times 10. Oh, wow. You know, that, that was a common thing. He said, if you can breathe in here, I think was one, I think Roger Guillet said that. He said, well, one of the younger guys on the prequel said, oh, you can exist in this small room. Well, can you exist in this small room without oxygen? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, pushing people to do even beyond what they think they can do. And Empire, you know, I think Star Wars had however many shots, special effects shots, visual effects shots, Empire is something like 10 times as many and really difficult ones, you know, with the miniatures and everything. It was a massive undertaking. Uh, wow. And not and while he was doing it, remember, ILM is just making the move up from the South. It's not like they've been there for 20 years. Oh, okay. ILM is being established in Northern California. So it's all, or a lot of it is, is new. So there's that and th just the amazing you know, the amazing way that George, people, you can't take this for granted. The amazing way that George Lucas, with very, very little, would inspire a whole range of technicians and craftspeople and artists to do their best. People loved working for him. I loved working for him. Of course, there are some people who didn't who got out of there <laughs> as quick as they could. But the majority of people loved working him. And there's people, you know, people... Were there for 20 years 30 years he was just he was he was a good person to work for and not because he was you know making chit chat he, there was something about him that inspired people so that i found very interesting and then the whole financial angle which i because there were so many papers i found in the archives i could i found like the documents describing when bank of america was pulling out and and, you know, Bank of Boston was, and the actual dates, the checks were written and everything. So I was able to date everything to exact. That was just in terms of storytelling, it's great to know exactly when it happened in terms of making the movie sure. and how much was really at stake. The whole company was at stake. Sequels were not surefire hits. It's, it's easy to think that it was a surefire hit. Godfather 2 didn't make. I think it made less than half of what Godfather made. And uh, an empire did Jaws two. Jaws two was a huge disaster. Well, I, actually, no. I think it made money, but general and Empire didn't make as much money as uh, Star Wars. Right. And uh, it's the second act, and second acts are downer. So all of that stuff was really, really interesting. And uh, and then of course listening to all the Alan Arnold tapes was was really fun. You know, just listening to them on the way to work. Any takeaways from George Lucas himself and discussions you've had with him about The Empire Strikes Back that people may not know about? Well, no. Anything that was interesting was in the book. Okay. It was, <laughs> I remember being on the set of episode three, though, and Rick came by and said, okay, everybody's going to leave, but you can stay. And I thought, hmm, what's happening? And then um, uh, Hayden Christensen and Ian McDermott 
came up and to reshoot that scene in episode five mm-hmm. uh, where the emperor where you know, is saying, or Vader saying he could turn Luke and so they're sort of updating it. So it fits right with the voices and the mm-hmm. slightly tweaked dialogue. That was really cool. That was really, so I, I've actually seen part of episode five being shot. That's true. That's a good point. Wow. Yeah, That's that cool. was unexpected. And there was just, and it was a big secret. So there were literally just the, the minimum crew. There were only about six or seven people on the set. And you were like, I can. Well, I no, Rick, Rick, Rick came to say, Rick was very kind and said, he wanted me to stay and see it, which is nice of him. That's amazing. Um, do you guys have any other questions for, about uh, The Empire Strikes Back for JW? No, I could just listen to this for hours. I could too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel- this is like one of the few resistance broadcast episodes that I feel like I'm just listening to it, but it's live. I, I <laughs> like, don't mind. Awesome. <laughs> we're taxing yeah. your throat. You're like, you need the water. And, and I feel like we're, we're, we're burning you out here. But um, I guess um, a couple, just a couple more quick questions if that's okay. Yeah. So uh, Alec Guinness <laughs> returning, we know that it's been falsely reported over the years that he didn't like star Wars and he didn't like being part of it, but he actually did enjoy it. And he enjoyed the money he made with the box office <laughs> returns for the first one. What was his experience coming back for empire? Um, I know it's in the book, but uh, your take on it for our audience, um, him coming, you know, kind of coming back and, and doing uh, little bits of uh, Obi-Wan for empire as opposed to his main role in a new hope. Well, I think the reason why people think he didn't enjoy it is I think he, he wrote that. And his auto, he wrote a couple autobiographic memoirs. And I think he kind of poo-pooed Star Wars in one of them, if I remember correctly. But you know, just like anybody, you can have be of two two minds on the same subject. He certainly appreciated. In one of the books, I know he said, in terms of money, thank God for Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> because George gave him a some piece of the profits, and. Uh, but for that, for Empire, you know, unfortunately he died. You know, I would have loved to have spoken with him. He's you know, one of my favorite actors. If, if you know, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Lawrence of Arabia, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, just an incredible, incredible actor. Um, I, I think he, you know, didn't he have a, was, did he have a cold when he doing Empire? Is that the one that he had a cold or was it Jedi that he had a cold? I don't remember. I can't remember either. Um, I think he had a, yeah, you know, he was just there for a day or two. In Jedi, he has the one scene, so maybe that's the one he had the cold. Because in Empire, he's in Hoth, and he comes to him in the vision, and then he shows up on Dagobah. Yeah, but they, yeah. but still, they would have shot all of that. Oh, true. In, yeah. in a day or two. I, I really don't know what he was thinking. I think he probably just thought, I think probably George had to, give him a fair chunk of change to get him to come back um, or, you know, or, or talk, you know, talk him into it. Cause it's not that exciting. He, he was a, you know, an artist. So it's not that exciting to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, he's coming back also to do what actors don't really like to do, which is um, explaining the story. They don't want to be the person explaining. The story. Oh yeah, yeah. And he did some of that in star Wars, but it was so beautifully written and he had other things to do, but in star Wars, you know, he almost quit when he found out he didn't have a death scene. And he wasn't, or first when he found out he wasn't going to the end of the movie and then he was going to die without a death scene, he was very <laughs> upset. I mean, he almost quit right after. That's Tunisia. crazy. I mean, you guys know yeah. that, I'm sure. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's funny to think that he didn't think he had a death scene when like everybody knows that it's like the, the scene, scene where yeah, yeah but yeah, remember he wasn't there. Yeah. For that. <laughs> no, that's just it was yeah, a special yeah. effect, so he didn't get to act. That was a right. special effect. For, yeah. yeah, he was free. And also, he was didn't want he didn't like coming back as a ghost because he was a Roman Catholic, and, mm. and that was against his you know the, the, his religion as as he interpreted it. George had to tell him, well, he's not a ghost; he's a <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure exactly what George said, but he, you know, he's a, he's a manifestation, <laughs> the same personality in the force. I don't know what George told him, but he convinced Just him. Just use the word ghost. It was, it yeah. was, you will yeah. come back. You're not yeah. playing a ghost, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, what it, that was the key piece of casting in Star Wars. Alec Guinness agreeing to do Star Wars. I mean, that, I, I've been appreciating this more as I, as I write about other movies. It's just how sort of slightly half crazy you have to be to be a really good actor uh, to believe a hundred percent in what you're doing with all these people looking at you, most of whom have no idea what's going on, who haven't read the script, who who are being very critical of you or saying snarky remarks as soon as they get off the set, not maybe not on this, but in the, in the pub, uh, or wherever you have, you can you imagine how did Alec Guinness accept to do this reading the shooting script of Star Wars? Right. <laughs> I mean, what kind of crazy person of his stature would agree to do that? And it's because he saw a little bit of Tolkien and you know, yeah. and he liked to work or whatever, and he liked George when he met him. It's just that was the key, you know, without Alec Guinness, the first what? movie wouldn't be as good. The, by so far. The- to to kind of like tie it all together then, and it all seems to first first Alec Guinness and then Jar Jar later. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all seems this like string together to this one thing, and that is that everyone like people like George Lucas, because you say all the ILM people liked working for him, the actors liked working for him, uh, Alec Guinness was drawn to him, and that's what made him do this ridiculous movie. Like, what is it about George Lucas, and you loved working for him, what is it about George Lucas that you think makes people not only want to work for him, but like him enough to do things out of their comfort zone or things that they think are ridiculous? Well, that is a very good question. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, once he had done a a couple good movies, it's easier to say, well, people would look at these this movies he'd done and the artwork that he created, you know, in these movies and go, this is a really remarkable person. I want to work for him. Um, but, but already before that, he was galvanizing the troops, so to speak, even when he made his student films, THX. And when he was a, just a guy who got an award standing on the, on the set of uh, Finian's rainbow, right? Fred Astaire, you know, you guys, know how George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola met. Well, uh, a series of circumstances, George just happened to be Warner Brothers on a kind of like a scholarship and there was nothing for him to do. And he called up his friend, Howard Kazanji, and it was first AD on Finian's Rainbow. And he said, I'm bored here. What should I do? He said, well, you come over here. We're shooting. And uh, so George came over and was watching them shoot. And Fred Astaire is working with Petula Clark and, Francis Ford Coppola has already won an Oscar, I believe. Yeah, I think he already won for Patton. So he's a fairly big presence. Wow. And uh, George is standing at his side, and there was something magnetic about him that 
brought Coppola over to him and say, what do you think? Think of it. George goes, not much or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and Coppola says, well, if you get any ideas, let me know. And so two of them become friends during this period. And then they go off and do the rain man. And George is kind of Coppola's assistant in documentary. Now, making a behind-the-scenes film, I'd just like to point out about The Rain Man, which became The Rain People, I believe. Anyway, so there was something about his style. He had style, he had attitude, and there was something magnetic about his personality. And then he had very far-out ideas. And he and Coppola were, then went off and started American Zoetrope up in San Francisco. And they were, I mean, they you have to can't underestimate what a rebellious person and maverick he was mm-hmm. for a long, long time. And, uh, and just how off beat his, his ideas were. And, and, and really THX, he said to me, is, is probably the truest rep- representation of his personality, just quite strange and out there, you know? And so, I think there's just all these things and, and everything he did, he did in an interesting way. If you worked at Skywalker Ranch, it was like work. It was like working in Disneyland, right? It wasn't an amusement park, but it was so beautiful. Everything mm-hmm. about it had been done. And, and Marsha Lucas, of course, also should get a lot of credit for, for Skywalker Ranch, at least in the early days. Uh, she had a lot to do with the design and everything, but, but you know, the big rock ranch, which was all George was also incredible. And I, but, but the thing, I'll, the story that I always remember, which I just think was really great, is when he got the computer division together after Star Wars. He had the money to start basically doing these uh, experiments and bankrolling what would become digital cinema. And he got uh, Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Sargent, these very, these very genius tech guys. And eventually, John Lasseter was there, and they right. moved the Avid computer. And George, they were, George didn't know what they were doing technically. He knew what he wanted them to do, but he's, George is not a computer genius. These guys were computer right. geniuses. And he, they came and they showed him like an early prototype of one of the computers. And George was eating his sandwich and there was like a ledge and he put his sandwich down on the ledge of the computer. And he looked at it and he said, well, it can hold a tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> they, just, they just loved it. Like this is a real guy. I mean, he's not. He's not <laughs> full of shit. He's not. Right. He's not uh, pretending to be. You know, and, and he's bankrolling us. You know, and, yeah. and we're doing this incredible work because he's bankrolling us. Wow. And uh, so that's that's inspiring. So do you think then it- it's like it's like so weird? It's like a it's like the opposite of Steve Jobs, <laughs> but like just as fascinating. It's so funny too because. Well, not funny, but awesome to hear from you because all the interviews and stuff and books that I've read from people that have worked with George have said that it was not just that he had his way of thinking and it was like his way or the highway. He also, like you said, pushed the people that worked for them, worked for him to give their best work. So someone was doing uh, visual effects and was meeting with George and was working on some type of uh, space battle scene. And he had said he wanted a certain edit. And the person was like, oh, well, we can't do that because of something. And George looked at him and was like, we don't say can't here. Like, <laughs> you're not going to tell me you can't do something. Yeah, that- because if you can't do it, then you shouldn't be working here. And I was like, 
I mean, that is bold, but like, it's true. Like you want someone that's going to be like, I can't do it right now, but I'm going to figure it out. And it seemed like that's what people he, those are the types of people he wanted to surround himself with were, yeah, we can't do it now, but we're going to make it happen. Yeah. And I think that's why people were so, I'm still so inspired by him because it's like, he always pushed the boundaries. And if he couldn't do something, he didn't just say, okay, well, that's it. He would take the steps to make it happen on his own. Right. That's all true. And it, but what's also nice about, or I found very human about him too, is at a certain point, if it wasn't working, it's not like he would throw a temper tantrum. Right. Like some directors might. He would, I remember once this thing wasn't working and he just walked away and he said, well, we tried. <laughs> and then he famously had CBB. Was that the Phantom Menace? <laughs> um, in, I think around Empire, he had a, is when he started the CBB. Maybe it was on Star Wars, but when they watched the dailies, it's mm-hmm. like, could be better. You know? Oh, really? But it's, we will accept it, the shot. could be better, but it's good enough. And some people would argue that he said that too early. I know some of the ILM guys would arg- try and argue with him they could make it better, but there was a certain balancing of time and money. And so it's it's not like he just pushed me. He also knew when to pull back. Right. You know, right. it was it's that delicate balance. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was such an honest person when he didn't have capital to rest on that maybe he earned respect from people in that way. When he had, he knew he could lose everything, but he still was very honest and open about his thoughts on things. And like even him quitting the director's guild because they wouldn't, he he didn't put the director's credit at the beginning of the movies and stuff like that. Like he just like he was willing to lose it all for his vision, I guess. And maybe that earned respect by other artists. Well, I think throughout his career, he was trying and Marsha in the beginning, Marsha Lucas, I think, had was also on the very much on the same page with him. They wanted to create a company that was fair to people. And he wanted other people to be fair to him. And the Directors mm-hmm. Guild, he thought, was not operating in a fair way. Um, <clears throat> Lucasfilm was not his name, just like Warner Brothers, you know, wasn't the name of the Warner Brothers. I mean, it was and it wasn't. It's the name of his company. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, they, Marsha and George were the first, I don't know if they're, I, I don't know if they were the first movie company, but they, Certainly, to my knowledge, there weren't a lot of companies doing that. Of course, they're publicly traded, but as a private company, and they gave the employees all a percentage of the profits from Star Wars. And not only that, they said, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the janitor. If the janitor has been here longer than the CEO. The janitor gets more money than the CEO. I love that. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And um, I, it, afterwards, it was changed, but that was the idea in the beginning. And so... That those that that's the kind of person he was, and I, I, you know, even during the prequels, I don't think it was money that was uh, a problem. I think start. I would say even starting with Empire, as soon as he had like instead of one project in Star Wars, he had one project. That was the one thing he was working on. Once he was building a ranch, <laughs> <laughs> making three other movies at the same time, it's just a lot more to keep track of. Right. He started burning out. And by the time he was doing the prequel trilogies, he's got many projects going on. And already with Jedi, well, he had 
Jedi, of course, there was other things going on personal in his personal life. But right. I, I don't think it was the money uh, that that influenced him. I think it's just, you know, he was older and didn't have quite the same fire. But I still, even in episode two, if you can if you can make something as good as the asteroid chase in episode two, you're a pretty fine film director. That asteroid okay. chase is uh, the shots are so beautiful. It's so, and in terms of the storytelling, it's just so well done. Yeah. Uh, the dialogue's not so great. Nice. <laughs> sure, sure. But uh, yeah. in terms of the shot design, it's just fantastic. And there's, so there, even in the prequels, I, I think there's moments that are really, really uh, as good as anything he did in the original trilogy. That's just my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have anything else for you. I know we've taken a lot of your time, so I really appreciate it. I guess your your final thoughts on um, uh, for our audience, you know, your personal feelings about the movie The Empire Strikes Back. I know you're really big uh, original Star Wars and original cuts, um, but the movie itself, whether it's the original cut or the new editions, whatever, your, your personal feelings about uh, the film itself, The Empire Strikes Back. I think it's a great film. I mean, it's one of the all-time great films that have ever been made. It definitely somewhere in the top 50 uh, because it did that rare thing where it built upon something that was already fantastic and and managed to carry it forward in, in significant ways uh, and had wonderful characterizations incredible visual effects, incredible music. We haven't even said John Williams' name once during this whole thing. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, John Williams managed to write even more great music for Star Wars after, you know, after writing probably his masterpiece, right? Right. Oh, that was another part of your book. You, this is another, I'm sorry, I had to say this. Yeah. You said in your book, it says when George handed this, the drafts to Larry Kasdan to write the final draft. He said, listen to the score for Star Wars as you're doing this. Oh, did he? Yeah. And that, that, that like, that's so amazing. Like, the, the, <laughs> I love that. I just absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a, a fan of John Williams' music. I, I remember him in episode three saying, oh, don't, don't worry, Johnny will make this work. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the highlights of my life was sitting there with Ben for spotting the music. You know when they spot the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I got mm -hmm. I I was got to sit there with Ben Burt, John Williams, George Lucas spotting the music for Episode Three. I wasn't there for the whole thing, but I was there for maybe an hour. And it was just I just you know afterwards you have to pinch yourself. Yeah. Right. Unreal. And uh, wow. Um, wow. So you know great music it's just and that what empire is what all the great movies are it's just a, and what i love about film is that it brings together so many disciplines so many great artists and craftspeople who are at the top of their trade things that and there's so many little decisions that are made that can make or break the movie that we're not even aware of and uh when it all goes right it's just a beautiful beautiful thing and the whole thing is like a piece of music. It's like a two-hour yeah. piece of music. It's not like reading a book, which mm -hmm. is a different experience, as you guys know. 
it's a, you know, it's like listening to a piece of music because it, it controls the pacing and it controls exactly what you see and hear. And it's, and that's why you can, and when it works, you can just, that's why people have seen the movie a hundred times or 200 times. Some people, yeah. it just works. So well, I think we have to end on that note. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if, if you guys out there haven't checked out JW's books yet, the making of star Wars, making of the empire strikes back, making of return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones, alien. Uh, and then, uh, once again, your new, uh, novel coming up, um, what it was the June or July, July, July 14th, Bastille day in France, July 14th, Bastille day available, <laughs> available for pre-order. Uh, it is called all up. So check it out. And you have a website too, right? I have a website. It's on the website. Yep. And uh, everything. What's the website? Just jwrinsler.com. Okay. Nice. And then do you have anything else you'd like to plug or tell people about? Uh, nope. That'll do it. Thank you very right. much. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we would just, I want to say on behalf of me, uh, thank you so much for taking the time um, and talking about this. And we'll obviously have to have you back for, for more stories about other Star Wars movies and stuff like that. Uh, James and Lacey, anything you want to say to JW before we get out of here? Thank, thank, thank you so much, man. I've, I've enjoyed everything about this. No, you're welcome. Yeah, this Thanks. has been super fun. I love George. So anything I hear about George, I'm like super excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love him too. And uh, I, I think it was his birthday the other day. Or today. Isn't today his birthday? As we're recording this, As it's his we're recording birthday. This, yeah. yes. yeah. Happy birthday, yeah. George. So is he 76 yeah. now? Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Well, so go call so him. Happy- Next year, he'll be 77. <laughs> Yeah, right <laughs> so happy birth let's all say happy birthday to him yeah. happy birthday george happy birthday george happy birthday <laughs> all right thank you jw you're welcome thank you guys for having me back i look forward to the next time yes yes so there you have it jw rinsler we talked him to the ground he needed to get some water <laughs> needed to clean the uh, Clean his thoughts out, and uh, but he uh, it was unbelievable. He spent so much time with us, and we appreciate uh, him taking the time to do that. Um, talking about Empire Strikes Back, I know I can go for a long time uh, talking about that movie. Hours, we could have kept him on for hours talking about that movie, um, at least from my perspective. But uh, um, that's it. Uh, we uh, are here celebrating Empire Strikes Back, and we're going to keep that rolling right now. Uh, so thank you again to J.W. Rinsler for taking the time to do that. But we're going to send it to Lacey to uh, keep this theme going in the Patreon Padres. Lacey? All right, guys. It's time for the Patreon Padres. So there's a lot of different ways that you can support us. You can like this video, subscribe, comment below, please, letting us know what you think about Empire Strikes Back. Uh, And then also follow us on Twitter at R-B-A-T-S-W-N-N or if you want even more content and more access with us, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash resistance broadcast. We have all different tiers um, that give you exclusive content from mini episodes, which we have more more than eight a month. We have Q&As, polls, all different types of stuff. So our generals get to be a part of the show uh, they're our highest tier, and this is their chance. So we ask them a question, and then they get to answer that question in 60 seconds or less, and then we react to it. Before I get to that, we just want to thank those generals. So thank you, Carmelo, Andrew Staley, Jeremy Myers, Neil Shaw, 
David Probus, John Reese, Micah Harrison, Tampa Movie Guy, Michael Gaines, Jetta Rosewater, Beer Fett, and Val Trichkoff. <laughs> I love that I have to thank Beer Fett. So great. Beer Fett. Um, so this week we're actually hearing from General John Reese, and we asked him, what is your favorite moment or scene from The Empire Strikes Back and why? So John, take it away. Hello, TRB community. This is General Beard, John Reese. I'm here to tell you about the best moments from The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it has to be Yoda and Luke training on Dagobah, specifically when Yoda has all of his quotes about luminous beings. We are uh, questioning Luke on his belief, and that is why you fail. Uh, judge me by my size, do you? A Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and defense, never attack. Uh, he succinctly explains the Force, and I think a lot of people forget about how the Force should be looked at, especially with the newer movies and... Uh, everybody sometimes getting up in a hoopla uh, and arguing about things. Uh, it's really quite simple, and it boils down to belief and using it for good. Uh, even though I do lean Empire and Vader and Palpatine are my favorite characters overall, uh, that is the best part from Empire. Signing off. All right, John. First of all, you are all decked out with the Episode Nine hat, the the ahsoka tano jacket you've got all the stuff um so john our john what did you think of his answer that's yoda um no i loved it i like uh i don't know there's something it's it's so simple and 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 just loved about like universally loved is something i think of when i think of yoda and um his wisdoms and those quotes, and it's just fun, you know, so funny, you know, J.W. Rinsler talking about the biggest contribution uh, Larry Kasdan made was making Yoda work. And there we have John Reese talking about how, how all those lines stuck with him. So it's just like, yeah, that's the proof in the pudding right there, right? Um, and I know you love the bad guys. I know you love Vader. I know you love Palpatine. But the fact that um, Yoda and, and those quotes about the Force and really, like you put it well, John, uh, General Beard. Uh, how simple it really is and you know choosing to be good and uh and treating and respecting the force the right way and yoda kind of trying to hammer that home to luke so i thought that was a great answer you know you know my quote in uh to sign off all my articles is in my allies for my allies the force and a powerful ally it is so um just well done and uh like as always, John, you're you're a great fan. I, I'm glad you get to do these pod races from time to time. Thanks for always supporting us and always shouting us out on your own and just you know telling people to subscribe to us and join the Patreon. And everything you're such a good Star Wars fan, and I see you do that for a lot of other people too. So I'm glad you get to have uh, some time here so people can see what you're all about. And uh, thanks for being awesome, James. Yep, good pod race. Uh, I I totally agree. I think Yoda to me in a lot of ways is like a big, huge takeaway from the empire strikes back. Um, I think, uh, I think Taika Watiti said it in a couple episodes ago of the, the gallery, you know, that one of the things that really stuck with him is that specific line. And it's always been the one for me too, is, um, when Luke comes out or when the X-Wing comes out and he says, I don't believe it. And it's, that is why you fail. And it's so funny because like, what is that? Like eight total words or 10, less than 10 <laughs> words between two characters. And it just so perfectly encapsulates so much of what we understand about uh, confidence and faith and, um, you know, being being 
willpower you know it's just it's so good and uh i'm really glad that that stuck out to you too so good answer and uh thanks for doing the pod race for us john this is hands down (laughs) one of the best answers (laughs) because uh yoda i think is the best part of empire strikes back it's I grew up with the Muppets. I love that kind of, I love puppetry, (laughs) stuff like that. So when I grew up watching Star Wars and Yoda shows up, I was like, oh my gosh, it's a puppet and it's amazing. And it just shows how great the movie is because they made a puppet seem so alive and part of the world in a way that you never second guessed it. You never thought, oh, there's a guy down there being like this. Uh, so I totally agree with you. Um, thanks for being an awesome fan. Thanks for doing this for us. We really appreciate it. You came in the clutch and we appreciate everything you do for us and all other types of fans. And thanks for just loving Star Wars with us. So now we're going to head over to me and (laughs) we're going to do resistance transmissions. Lacey. Thanks, Lacey. It's time. For resistance transmission. And I'm the cheesy one. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Lacey. No. All right, guys. It's time for resistance transmissions. You know how this works. Every week, John puts up a crazy, wacky situation, and you guys give your answers. Um, I can already kind of glance over on my notes, and I see that it's not a wacky situation, but I had to include that because I know some guys... Some of you guys like when I say that, so I left it in there for you. You're welcome. Good. All right. So the scenario this week, kind of going off our whole episode, is what is your favorite moment from The Empire Strikes Back? So this is like a warm, wholesome, fun one. Yeah. And John's pointing at his poster. That one. That, that That's movie. his favorite most is the poster. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You looked very angry when you were pointing at your poster. That's why it caught me off guard. You looked like really mad. I was like, what? what he- well, it's the <laughs> second act. That's when everything falls apart. You got to be like. Got it. All right. So first up is Todd C. At C. Bouthjurus. Jorus. That was an interesting. Chaos? No. Oh, no. C. Oh, I thought that was an H. <laughs> no, I just can't read. Todd, anyway. what 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 is what you have to explain your handle? Yeah, I don't know what yeah. that is. Okay. He said, I truly feel this film is a masterpiece. Not one bad scene. If I had to pick a favorite, it would be I am your father I it would be the I am your father reveal. Because it's one of the most iconic scenes in movie history and it's one of the most quoted and misquoted lines ever. I still tear yeah. up a little when it's this moment happens. I get chills every time wow. it happens. Really? Yep. Um, next is Patrick Covey at Gannon136. He's back, baby! <laughs> <laughs> and Patrick said, the end of the film where you realize the force allows people to communicate through it and you realize that force FaceTime was in front of your face for four decades. Good Did point, Pat. Wow. Yeah. Next is Todd DeGrossier at Todd Knows Best. And Todd says... For me, it was it has to be seeing Bubba Fett and all the other bounty hunters for the first time. I remember immediately thinking how cool they looked, and I wanted to know everything about them. Nice, big surprise. Yeah, big I have to say though, surprise. I appreciate this answer because everybody has that one thing that they really, really love, and of course, there's always well, like sure. 
something yeah. that everyone's like, oh, everyone loves Isn't this moment. But everybody has that one weird thing that they're like, that one head nod really, really stuck out to me. Or like that one character in the back doing this one thing. I just love it. For this scene, it's a, for it's it's always Bosk's toes hanging over the edge. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, Kenny Crawley Jr. at Kenny Crawley. Hey, Kenny. Kenny he said, got his handle. So yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, he said, Yoda lifting Luke's X-Wing. The scene, the musical score by John Williams is just breathtaking. John Williams made Star Wars. Like, he definitely did. Next is CMP yeah. at S-Stage Photo Gal. And CMP said, when Han and Leia kiss for the first time, love this. He's a little... He's a scoundrel. And then it was interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm thinking about is Force Wayans where he's like, oh, look, Kira. And you're like, uh. Again, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next is Deepa Banana, who James, said. Yeah. Depa De- De- Banana is, I think it's a Depa Balaba joke. Oh, Depa Banana. Might, I mean, it might be. Uh, said this scene. I love Yoda saying, only what you take with you. Violence begets. Is that how you say that? Begets violence? Mm. It is. Violence begets violence. It's also an introspective look into Luke's darkness and fears that the dark side could manifest to him. This is a great answer. That is a good answer. Mm. A deep answer. Love that. From a banana. Yeah. Um, and did oh well, I'm gonna save all these thoughts for the Patreon commentary that we're doing for. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just so funny that that deep answer came from a a banana handle. Right. Yeah, and it reminds me kind of of what I was saying before. Is like, what is that? Ten words between two characters or something? Like yeah. only what you take with you. Right. Six words, and it just so fully encapsulates like. It's you know you are what you put out, and it's yeah. just it's so crazy. And it's thought, funny you say that too because J. W. Rinsler brought that up about Lawrence Kasdan. Like you'd see him add like yeah. one or two or maybe ten words. Yeah, yeah. I thought. I mean, even though it was a deep answer from Deepa Banana, I thought it was very appealing. <laughs> Seriously, Seriously? don't. <laughs> That's a combination John. of seriously and really, and my brain just died. <laughs> like I thought it was just because you put bananas in cereal. No, Cereally? I hate bananas. <laughs> Sorry. That was seriously, that's what that was. It was me going serious yeah. and really at the same time, and my mouth came up with that. But John, everyone go back, replay the episode about 20 seconds from now. You'll see John come up with this joke and just wait and wait for it. And my favorite comment from the last episode was when someone was like, I saw the look on John's face. I saw him write it down. <laughs> I saw him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you busted. To be fair. All right, let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. I don't, uh, we're getting slipped up here. Okay. All right. Uh, oh, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought you were just being really rude. Oh. I was like, all right. Guy. I was being rude too. So I immediately looked back at my notes. <laughs> I, I'm sitting here watching the two of you like processing, <laughs> processing, processing. 
You know what it was? It was like Mario Kart, where you get on the the banana peel and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa! Like that's what <laughs> yeah. just happened. James is going through his joke list. Hey. He's like, we have to chiquita that one off. There we go. <laughs> John, <laughs> any any more? You want to get him out? Nah. Yeah. Can we hit the two hour episode? Right. Okay, we're getting there. Yeah. Next is Do Droids Dream of Electric <laughs> Bantha? Wow. Oh yeah, that's cool. At I M L Dia. Diabolito? Diablito. Oh, oh. That means I am the little devil, I think. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, they said, so many to choose from, but I love Luke taking down an at-at during the Battle of Hoth. That is nice. pretty B-A. Next is Glenn Johnson N-A-N-A. at Hazy Big and said, quote, that's right and all my friend. that's right and my friends out in it. The original trilogy was full of these, quote, my friend is in danger and no matter what I need to save them moments. This scene is yeah. the best out of all of them. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I, Han was very. It ties in a lot to the sequel trilogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Han was very cowboy in that. He's like, I'll see you in hell. Like, you know. Yeah. You do love that line. Yeah. Uh, next is Joey Sack at Joey Sack. Hi, Joey. He said, when Yoda reveals who he really is, the way Yoda goes from the stra- from strange old hermit to wise Jedi master in the blink of an eye is so well done. Yeah. Without a doubt. By, by my size, do you? Wow. Uh, what? What are you saying wow about? The quote. Oh. The change. True. <laughs> uh, the reveal. Jeff P. Skywalker at R.I.P. Burt Convoy Convy said, quote, I just as soon soon kiss a Wookiee. I can arrange that. You could use a good kiss. <laughs> yeah. I love their relationship. That's Kazden again, making that humor work. Yeah, I love I love how feisty. And it's funny that well, it's not funny, it's obviously on purpose, but Kazden wrote that, and then you see the relationship between like Indiana Jones and stuff, and you're like this is like Han and Leia's relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Guys, I just watched Indiana Jones in the past year, so I can now uh-huh. get these references. So so the movie is pretty ripe still in your mind. John. <laughs> Go for that two-hour podcast, baby! <laughs> Let me get through this. Okay. Next is FN2187 at Mike underscore hey. 8420. And Mike said... I'm assuming your name is Mike. Mike said, I love how Vader is so quick to choke out anyone who makes a mistake. LOL. <laughs> that is a prime LOL. <laughs> uh, he was not messing around trying to find Skywalker. No, he was not. Yes. And last Mike, but- I think his name is Mike. Mike is, I think yeah. it's the only name they ever gave him. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's a commander, I think. He's a commander. He is. Uh, and he's a big make solo two happen. So... Um, Get after it on Monday. Just throwing that in there. Yeah. Makes one happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And last but not least is Alec, Alex Zukas. Another commander. At Zubaka. I love this handle. Zubaka. He said, I love the fight between Vader and Luke on Bespin. The first line spoke spoken by Vader gives me chills every time. The force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. Yes. Nice. That's John's favorite scene. That's why I put it I only last. know that because he brings it up like all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is an Empire Strikes Back episode. So, <laughs> you know. Guys, thank you so much. If you want to be on the show, make sure to follow us on Twitter at RBATSWNN. And John usually 
puts up a crazy wacky situation mm. but sometimes he changes it up like this week and does something really nice and wholesome and wonderful <laughs> except for the banana bits i'll leave those <laughs> behind hmm. uh, banana bits my favorite cereal yeah no trash that right. back to you john okay listen <laughs> i want to remind everyone out there that make solo two happen day is in four days it's monday four days on monday the 25th how you get involved is simple if you're on social media whether that's twitter instagram facebook wherever reddit i don't care use hashtag (laughs) make solo two happen early often all day take a photo of you with your make solo two happen shirt if you don't have one of those any kind of Star Wars, solo gear, chewy stuff. Wow, you watching Toys. the movie, anything. Yeah. Just tweet away, Facebook away, Instagram away. We're going to share everything. It's going to be cra- crazy. It's going to be insane. And we just, it, it's an amazing time. Last year, we didn't expect it to be as big as it was. And we see the passion growing for uh, more solo. And we dr- are just hoping for a great day. So get involved. And if you have any questions, hit us up. You can email us at resistancebroadcast at gmail.com or Twitter at RBATSWNN. Uh, but more importantly, uh, for the long haul, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, everywhere you get your podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe because we're putting out a lot of content, including the Mando Fan Show, which you'll see tomorrow. Um, Make sure you go to StarWarsNewsNet.com every day for your latest Star Wars news, reviews, editorials, information, and more. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Johnny Hoey and writing and editing over StarWarsNewsNet.com. James? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Myra Trunks and also trying to fix my Galaxy's Edge saber. Do you guys see that? I don't know. Yeah. It turns from purple to red and then back to purple. It's very con- very confusing. But, of course, nowadays I think it's going to go from green to yellow to brown well i don't know it's another banana joke (laughs) i knew that was coming i was sitting here going how is he gonna work a banana into this (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh please don't talk about bananas anymore Okay. They're not always the pick of the bunch, you know. Stop. (laughs) Jeez. Guys, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Lacey Geller and not talking about bananas, but having really a lot of fun about Star Wars. So we uh, thank you once again to J.W. Rensler for joining us. Um, He will definitely be coming back. Um, We could have like went on just like with a lot of our interviews. We could have gone on and on and... uh, it was a lot of fun and I hope you guys enjoyed that and I hope you enjoyed this long episode. We know it was a little long and if you're still with us now, you're diehard This is the TRB. longest episode we've yeah. ever done. So we're going to tell you a secret. <laughs> I think that could be true. <laughs> Since yeah. you've been with us so long, here's a little secret. We're going to be back Monday with another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy your weekends and get ready for Make Solo 2 Happen Day because Monday's episode is going to be all about Make Solo 2 Happen and we'll see you then right here on the Resistance Broadcast. See you around, kids. <laughs>